on the 3rd of April, 1968. A loving husband, father of four young children, kissed his family goodbye and left for Memphis, Tennessee. He would never return, and they would never see him alive again. On the 4th of April, 1968, approximately one minute past six in the evening, as he stood on a balcony overlooking a parking area of the Lorraine Motel, he was felled by a single bullet, never regained consciousness, and died shortly thereafter. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the beginning of this story. Those words come from the opening statements of a 1999 lawsuit called The King Family vs. Lloyd Jowers and Other Unknown Co-Conspirators. And the trial by jury that followed ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, taking only two hours to deliberate at the end of the 14-day proceedings before agreeing with the King family that Lloyd Jowers, the owner of a Memphis coffee shop, had been a small part in a vast government conspiracy to assassinate Martin Luther King Jr. Yesterday, King would have turned 92, and of course, Monday is Martin Luther King Day. So today, I want to take some time to talk about the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as well as the secret government programs that may have been responsible for his death. You're listening to Hidden History. My name is Ellis Tucci, and this is Episode 99, Killing King. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. All of the sources for this week are in the description, and if you like this episode, then subscribe and share it with your friends. So heads up, in the next 30 seconds or so, I'm going to be talking about some potentially sensitive subjects. But right off the bat, in order to ease into the topic at hand, I want to take a second to dispel a really popular and unpleasant rumor about Dr. King. And that is that he was a brutal sexual sadist who carried on an extensive number of drug-addled affairs, many supposedly with white prostitutes, and held orgies with church money. As recently as 2019, outlets like Business Insider published articles claiming that Martin Luther King watched a sexual assault. When talking about Dr. King, you'll often hear people bring up this supposed history in order to make the argument that King was a morally ambiguous man, or perhaps that he was a hypocrite who, while fighting against the immorality of what we would now recognize as an apartheid state, was himself an immoral man in private. The implication of those arguments, of course, is that by personally discrediting him, we should disregard his teachings and beliefs, or in some way distance ourselves from Dr. King the role model. If you've heard these claims or repeated them to others, then you've fallen prey to an FBI misinformation campaign that's been going strong for, oh, I don't know, about the past 65 years or so. It is true that Dr. King had a small number of affairs over the course of his life, but everything else is completely false. The rumors that you might have heard are the product of an illegal FBI program meant to discredit activists and especially target black community leaders called COINTELPRO, an abbreviation of counterintelligence program. And this program is one of the things that I really want to talk about in this episode. Because by the time I get to the end of it, I want to circle back around to that 1999 trial, 
And even though it's impossible for me to categorically prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the United States government was involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King, my goal is for you to leave this episode with the thought that that relationship is certainly within the realm of possibility. One of the ways that I hope to achieve that is by telling you a little bit about the things we know for a fact the government did, not just to King, but to activists all across the country. And hopefully, by the time we get back to the case, we'll have established that there's not a huge chasm in this analysis. There's no big blind spot where we need to massively suspend our disbelief. In case I get off on a tangent or do a less than adequate job of conveying my points, the macro-level summary of this section boils down to this. From 1956 onward, the FBI used COINTELPRO to target and commit reprisals against activists. These covert actions took the form of everything from the creation of forged documents released to the media to smear a target, to assassinations. From 1963 until his death in 1968, King was one of the highest priority targets of the program, even more so as became a de facto enemy of the state due to his opposition to the Vietnam War. And FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover made it his personal crusade to destroy him by any means necessary. Of course, the implication from this is that it's not unreasonable to suggest that there's a link between the fact that King was assassinated and the fact that King was a top target of a program that assassinated people. And so now with that summary out of the way, I'd like to take a deeper look into the FBI's counterintelligence program. What it was, how it functioned, and what it did. Note that I'm using past tense here because COINTELPRO officially ended in 1971 after a group of people who called themselves the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI broke into a field office in Media, Pennsylvania and exposed the existence of the illegal program to the people. Though the program officially ended 50 years ago, the FBI has continued to use the same tactics into the present day. So for the sake of this episode, I'm going to talk about COINTELPRO like it's a relic of the past, but I want you to keep in mind that it's very much still with us today. A pretty good example of this comes actually immediately after COINTELPRO supposedly ended in 1971. From 1971 to 1972, the FBI founded, funded, and organized a far-right paramilitary terror group called the Secret Army Organization or SAO, which targeted anti-war protesters and leftist academics in Southern California through a series of car bombings, break-ins, fires, and assassination attempts, as well as bombing a movie theater. The FBI would use the SAO in one of their two attempts to assassinate Peter Bomber, a leftist economics professor at the University of San Diego. All of this occurred, of course, after COINTELPRO had officially ended. So let's talk about the program in its prime. At the behest of J. Edgar Hoover, COINTELPRO began operations in 1956. Unsurprisingly, given the time, the initial goal of the program was to infiltrate the American Communist Party and destroy it by sowing strife and encouraging factionalism among its membership. Only a few months after its inception, the program grew to include black leaders and anyone involved in the fight for civil rights. The FBI thought that the struggle for racial equality was fundamentally incompatible with the ideals of the United States, and so they began to heavily target civil rights leaders under the concocted excuse that they were Soviet assets. Bayard Rustin, who was a socialist civil rights leader as well as a gay man, was a particularly important target for the beginnings of the program. 
but eventually the resources that were committed to the hundreds of other activists slowly began to shift towards Martin Luther King, who became target number one after the delivery of his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. After that point, the FBI began bugging his house and the motels he stayed with while traveling, keeping him under constant surveillance. In 1964, the FBI spliced together a number of audio tapes bugged from King's rooms across the country, assembling a final product that made it sound like King had been caught throwing a wild orgy. The Bureau then sent the tape to King and his wife, along with a letter, thought to have been written by Director of Domestic Operations William Sullivan, where he posed as a black man who was gravely disappointed in King's supposed actions, saying that he would leak the tape to the press. The only way out, the letter implied, was for King to commit suicide. At the same time, and as a part of the same program, the FBI was infiltrating the Nation of Islam and directly encouraging and participating in the events that would lead up to Malcolm X's assassination a year later. Another victim of COINTELPRO, who I've talked about on this show a number of times, is the activist Fred Hampton, who the FBI assassinated in his sleep in 1969, when he was only 21 years old. Martin Luther King knew that the FBI had written the letter and made the tape, and so he refused to cooperate. As a result, the FBI distributed it to news outlets around the country, which gave birth to the disgusting rumors I talked about in the beginning of this episode. Following what's called the long, hot summer of 67, in which 159 race riots erupted across the country, the FBI expanded COINTELPRO once again, this time creating a sub-program called Black Hate, which classified groups like SNCC, the Nation of Islam, and King's SCLC as violent hate groups, and targeted them as such. As America entered into 1968, Dr. King grew to become a larger and larger problem for the FBI. Internal memos from March 1968 show that the Bureau considered him a messianic figure that had the potential to unite disparate and fractured civil rights groups across the country into a single body that could effectively wield power. To the FBI, that was a nightmare scenario. A month later, King was dead. So now that we have a general grasp on what COINTELPRO was and how the FBI operated and continues to operate, I want to get back to that case. The King family versus Lloyd Jowers and other unknown co-conspirators. Now I feel it's my duty to mention that there are people who call into question the validity of this case. I'm not going to tell you that those people are right or wrong. There are certainly elements of this case that leave themselves open to criticism but that doesn't mean that the underlying supposition is invalid. I can't tell you what the right answer is because I don't know, and the only people who do are probably long dead. I do think that it is likely, given the timing of his death, his history with the Bureau, his status as an important target, and the brutality of the program, that the FBI was to some degree involved in the killing of Martin Luther King. Though if that's true, we'll never know. The jury in this case unanimously found that there was reasonable evidence and testimony to believe that there was a conspiracy involving the United States government to assassinate Martin Luther King. What I'm going to do is present you with what I hope is a representative slice of evidence and testimony, and hope that you draw your own conclusion. I'm not going to go into the criticisms of the case here, because frankly I don't have enough time, but they largely amount to criticisms of the reliability of witness testimony. So now that we have a little bit of context, let's take a deeper dive. 
The man who is largely believed to be responsible for the assassination of King is, of course, James Earl Ray, who in March 1968 drove from Los Angeles to Memphis and took up a room in a boarding house above a coffee shop called Jim's Grill. After King was shot, Ray fled, first to Georgia, then to Canada, then across the ocean, finally being captured two months later in London Heathrow Airport. He was brought back to the United States and, as a result of pressure from his lawyer, Percy Foreman, made what's called an Alford plea, or a guilty plea while maintaining innocence, in order to avoid being given the death sentence. Unbeknownst to Ray, the 1967 Supreme Court case Furman v. Georgia had placed a moratorium on the death sentence, and when Ray learned of this, he recanted his admission of guilt and fired his lawyer. Ray was then sentenced to 99 years, and due to his original plea, never received a trial. Coretta Scott King and her family eventually came to believe that Ray was not the person who had killed Martin Luther King, and wished for the government to grant him a new trial. They refused, so in 1997 a mock trial was held, televised on HBO, and the jury acquitted him. As a result of this new media attention, the King family decided to act on an old piece of information. In 1993, a man named Lloyd Jowers, who was once the owner of Jim's Grill, the coffee shop below Ray's sniper nest, went on ABC to announce that in 1968 he had been paid $100,000 to organize the assassination of Martin Luther King, that Ray had been a patsy, and that the real shooter was Memphis police officer Earl Clark. In 1999, the King family acted on this information, bringing a civil suit against Jowers that was meant mainly to establish the record. The Kings only sought damages of $100. I've linked the entire transcript of the trial in the description in case you'd like to browse through it, which I would highly recommend. It is incredibly long. There are 72 witnesses and thousands of pieces of evidence submitted, so it's not exactly a light read. But here are some important bits that I've pulled out. The trial includes the testimony of Thomas Smith, a former police captain, first on the scene at the time of the assassination, who revealed that the witnesses who identified Ray fleeing the scene were heavily intoxicated and likely lacked the ability to make such a judgment. There's testimony from Floyd Newsom, one of the two black firefighters stationed at House Number 2 across the street from the Lorraine Motel, both of whom were alerted the night before the killing that they were being relocated across the city due to either the request from the Memphis police or threats against their lives. There's a deposition from James McGraw, a former cab driver, who testified that the day after the shooting, Lloyd Jowers showed him the murder weapon in Jim's grill. There's testimony from Leon Cohen, an amateur photographer and friend of Walter Bailey, the Lorraine's owner, who stated that Bailey was distraught because the night before King arrived, someone posing as a member of his Atlanta office had called and requested his room be changed from the isolated courtyard to the exposed balcony. There's testimony from Olivia Catling, who lived down the street from the Lorraine Motel and witnessed a man escape the scene who matched the description provided by Solomon Jones, King's chauffeur, who ran towards the sound of the shot, only catching a glimpse of a man running away through the tall brush in front of the boarding house. There's testimony from Earl Caldwell, a former New York Times reporter who was staying at the Lorraine in order to interview King. He ran outside when he heard the shot and saw a man across the street lying down obscured in the brush. 
There's testimony from Joe Brown, a judge and rifle expert, who said that not only had the telescopic sight on Ray's rifle not been calibrated at all, but the metallurgical composition of the slug that killed King was different from the composition of the unfired ammunition in the gun, making it highly unlikely they came from the same source. There are hundreds more pages of testimony that I could summarize for you, but I have a feeling that you probably get the point. After two weeks' worth of proceedings, the jury took only two hours to reach a verdict. They'd been asked two important questions. Did Lloyd Jowers participate in a conspiracy to do harm to Martin Luther King? And do you also find that others, including governmental agencies, were parties to this conspiracy as alleged by the defendant? To both, the jury answered a unanimous yes. A year later, in 2000, the United States Justice Department released a 150-page document categorically denying any involvement in the death of Dr. King. But the King family had been vindicated, establishing in the public record what they had believed to be true for decades. Ultimately, we'll never be able to categorically determine the veracity of either side of this story. But somewhere, the truth is out there. Hey, thanks for listening this week. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Do some further reading in the links in the description and subscribe. Thank you so much for your continual support, and I hope I will see you next week. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.